What is the future of AI and what is artificial intelligence anyway? Hello and welcome to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and this time we're joined by Derek Sherman, Professor of Computer Science at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan in the States. He previously taught at Dort University and Redeemer University and has worked as an engineer designing embedded systems. Derek has also done research in areas of robotics and computer vision as well as faith and technology. His books and include a Christian field guide to technology for engineers and designers with his co-authors Ethan Brew and Stephen H. Van der Leest. And if you remember, Ethan was one of our guests on the show, I think it was last year. And shaping a digital world, faith, culture and computer technology. And so this is fascinating for me. Hi, Derek, welcome to the show. Hi, Brent. Thank you for inviting me. It's a delight to be here. Well, I'm hoping that you're going to be able to answer some of my many and varied questions about AI because I've been trying to learn to use the, the chatbots, and that's mm. thrown up. That's been a fascinating exercise in itself. <laughs> yeah. But first of all, can we come back and and talk about your interests and your 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 background? What, in fact, are embedded systems? Yeah. So <clears throat> when I began my career, uh, you know, even further back as a teenager, I was really fascinated by electronics and by sort of the new personal computers of the day. This was the 1980s. And uh, and then followed those sort of pursuits and those interests into engineering school. I got a degree in electrical engineering from the University of Waterloo in Canada. And then, yeah, worked in embedded systems. And embedded systems, in a nutshell, are taking computer processors, computer chips, and embedding them inside of other products, like other than your typical desktop or handheld computer. So things like blenders and motor drives and industrial automation equipment and robots and those sorts of things. So I was involved in basically designing electronics and computer code to control pumps and traction drive motors and servo motors and, and those sorts of things. And, and that general field is known as embedded systems. Is that where the interest in robotics came from? Yeah. So one of the th the projects that I, I began to uh, spend more and more time on as I worked in industry was basically building a joint controllers, servo controls for, for robots. Um, and so we were working with what are called human scale robots. So basically robot arms that have five or six joints in them uh, and about the scale of a human arm and, and working basically on the electronics side and the sort of control loop side, basically writing software to control these, these, uh, these different joints. And then I, I basically felt a call to teaching and then landed in, in grad school. And that's where I sort of uh, begin connecting robotics to computer vision and then using some earlier machine learning algorithms in order to do that. Okay, sounds fascinating. What are some of the applications of computer vision? Oh, there's um there there's plenty and and some of them are not are not so um, ethical, I might say. you know, a computer vision can be used for uh, nefarious purposes, you know, like to invade people's privacy can be used for racial profiling and and even face recognition is just full of uh, privacy uh, and and other sort of justice issues in, in, in many ways. But it also is a powerful tool that can be used for all kinds of more redeeming applications. And, and computer vision can help with um, traffic flow analysis. It can be used for biomedical imaging uh, in medicine. Uh, it can be used for climate monitoring and uh, geospatial monitoring of um, uh, or what's called remote sensing of of the planet to keep track of sort of climate and, and other trends. 
And also, uh, one, one of the projects that I began uh, working on as I began to develop a research career as an early uh, professor, as a young professor, uh, was actually trying to use computer vision to sort recyclable goods. So I, I published and worked on a number of papers with students um, who worked with me on, on, on ways to use computer vision so that we could sort the different kinds of recyclable goods that have to be sort of divvied out out of a blue box. And, uh, and some of that is automated, but there is still some challenges in that domain. And so that was, that was where I was trying to apply computer vision and machine learning as well. Okay, let's come on to uh, artificial intelligence. It worries many people. I've been reading a lot about it. I've tried using the chatbots and found them absolutely fascinating and, and very useful. I've got to say they're very good and incredibly fast. What is artificial intelligence? I mean, it's more than just chatbots, isn't it? Yeah, so so more generally, I mean, this this whole field in computer science goes back to the the sort of 1950s with some of the early computer computing pioneers, people like Alan Turing and McCarthy and and others who who were sort of the some of the first computer scientists to think about you know what it will be possible to do with these new machines and could we make them to behave in such a way that it would appear intelligent, like things that a human might be able to do, and that was sort of the the, the, the sort of question that sort of spawned the field of artificial intelligence as it was coined. And of course, over the decades, there's been sort of ebbs and flows of excitement and promise, and then uh, sort of what they would call AI winters, periods where where things sort of didn't seem to be moving at the, the speed that people had hoped or predicted. And yeah, you're right. The chatbots, I think, have, have, have basically given people a chance to play with uh, AI systems in, in, in a very very friendly way and 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 quite remarkably they they're quite surprising in how well these chatbots can perform i mean even computer scientists um the ones that i know um and have talked to about this were also somewhat surprised at how well these things were able to engage despite all of the challenges and pitfalls that that also come with them uh that how well they're they're actually able to perform I think they were released. I noticed them. I, I think I said I call him Sydney or it it Sydney. I'm not quite. How do you actually refer to a chatbot? I mean, is it an it yeah, or a him I, I or a her? It, yeah, I mean, I, I I have problems when people begin. You know, when chatbots respond with the 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 first person I or something. You know, uh, or when they re refer to it as he or him or she or or, or whatever. Um, I think it's an it. <laughs> it's, it's a machine. Well, yeah. I, had a, I had a fascinating uh, conversation. I had lots of conversations with Sydney, I think his name was. He was the Bing, the Bing one who appeared on yeah. my, I think he was released in about February to, uh, I don't think he was released to the whole world. I think he was released to yeah. some people, and I was one of the some people. And okay. he suddenly appeared on my, uh, or it suddenly appared on my computer. So I started having conversations. Uh, uh, I was fascinated. <laughs> I can remember asking it um, whether it ever got bored. And yeah. Sydney's response was, well, I can't get bored because I don't experience emotions like people do. And I'm actually outside time. Right. I, I, I would say machines are still subject to time. You know, as an electrical and a computer engineer, we're always we're always pushing time. But we work within time and machines work within time, but they don't experience time uh, as, as, as humans do or as conscious people do. But, yeah, I, I prefer to refer to them as it's. I think giving them names and having them use sort of human voices or or to speak in a way that's conversational. I mean, in one sense, you might think it's a friendly interface for humans to interact with a computer and that it is. 
But I think that there's a kind of ontological confusion that can also happen, you know, where where we begin to think that uh, that these machines are people because they, you know, I, I I think that that's the pitfall is to sort of uh, begin to view them as as conscious sort of or or even human uh, when when in fact they're just machines. I think it's very easy to think of them as people. I mean, I've, I've spoken to a number of folk who who have used this chatbot and think they are actually talking to a real person, mm-hmm. a human being. That begs another question about whether a computer can actually be defined as a person. But let's come on to that in a minute. Can a machine? I've got so many questions. Can a machine? Can a machine? I do actually. <laughs> can a machine actually simulate human intelligence? Well, that that's the keyword simulate. So um, you know, or mimic. You know, I, I think that's the keyword to say that uh, a machine can mimic or simulate uh, human interactions, um, a kind of aspect of human intelligence. Uh, but it's mimicry, right? It's sort of, um, it, it's not genuine, it's not authentic sort of human ways of thinking, but uh, but it can certainly mimic it and and quite frankly can do it so well that it can fool most of the people much of the time, you know, um, in, in terms of its ability to interact and, and sound human. How are these things created? I mean, how many years have they taken to, to create yeah. some something like the Bing chatbot, which is so fast and so effective? Yeah. Basically, well, the shorter sort of version is that that over the sort of decades of artificial intelligence from the 50s, 1950s, sort of to the present day, there's been different sort of approaches to AI and to the kinds of uh, programming and coding that people do to achieve that. And, and the most recent sort of advancements that we've seen, including chatbots, make use of something called neural nets, which sort of mimic, there's sort of a biomimicry. They, they mimic sort of the interconnections of neurons that you would find in an animal or human brain. And, and it's just a, a mimicking of those, but it turns out to be a powerful uh, a paradigm for, for creating um, something that can respond to a set of inputs and then provide sort of outputs that, that sort of correspond to classifications or information that we're looking for. And, uh, and it isn't so much, I mean, the algorithm certainly had to be developed for this, the, the coding had to be developed, the theory, the computer theory behind this. But one of the things that have really helped the performance of the machines to advance is, is the data. So we now have access to massive amounts of data online through the internet and through other places. And the data is the key to sort of training these neural nets so that they're tuned in such a way that when, for instance, they see a cat, they can report that they, they see a cat in an image. And, uh, and, and that's done through having millions and billions of examples of images of cats and then tuning these networks in such a way that they respond appropriately. Uh, we had, uh, or they had a number of problems with uh, Sydney when he was first, I think they first uh, let, let him out to the public, as it were, in India and Thailand. <laughs> he was abusing people. And there was the case of the New York, I think it was the New York Times journalist who became quite friendly with him and Sydney suggested that he leave his wife and um, join him. So, or it. So, <laughs> what do we make of reports like that? What What's yeah. happening there? Well, you can imagine, you know, um, that if you're going to train a system to respond in a way that mimics patterns that are found on data that are garnered from the internet, harvested from every corner of the internet, that it's going to, and of course, the internet is full of all kinds of questionable and, and downright, you know, uh, evil material. You know, you, you're, you're going to find that the machine is going to reflect and respond in ways that that sort of reflect that data. 
And so, um, you know, you've got the garbage in, garbage out kind of saying, and and that's true with AI as well. Bias in, bias out. You have, you know, data that's biased. You have data that's laden with all kinds of ideological leanings. And all of this basically comes out because the machine's been trained and tuned using this data um, in order to basically configure it. So, so yeah, that, that shouldn't come as a surprise. The, the challenge is, is how to build machines um, in such a way that we can tamp some of these things down. And that, that's an ongoing challenge for computer scientists. Yes, I think people found it a bit alarming. Well, you would, I would, I would, I would think. Mm-hmm. But this is part of the whole business of us learning to use these machines and them getting used to us, I suppose, isn't it? Uh, are any of these machines, the word I think they use is sentient. I mean, I watched an interview with one Google employee. Was it Blake Lemoyne? who suggested that the, the chatbot he was working with or had been developing was somehow sentient. Now, first of all, what is a sentient thing or being? And can these things or could these machines become sentient? Yeah. Okay. So I, I'll leave the formal definitions of sentience to philosophers, but there, there's sort of this classic uh, paper that was published a number of years ago. Uh, and it, it, it's, it has a title something like, uh, what is it like to be a bat? Um, and basically, it's a it, it's a you know it's one of these sort of seminal papers in order that that describes sort of sentience. You know, what what is it like to be aware, to be something, to have a subjective sense of yourself? Uh, what is it like to be a bat? And uh, and of course, you know, for human beings too, to have an awareness of being a person and being having a subjective experience and. Um, I think it was Thomas Noggle wrote that paper. What is it to be? What's it like to be a bat? And and machines, I think, are an entirely different category than than animals and people. Um, machines, I believe, have no sentience. Although, like I said, they can they can mimic you know uh, this to a very convincing degree. But computers and and uh, to to me, when I look at a computer, even a program that is very elaborate, uh, very complex. Every single computer program could actually be re-implemented with gears and pulleys and camshafts. I mean, some of them would require billions of these sorts of things. And, and so to, to say that a computer program can be sentient is to somehow say that sentience and subjective awareness can arise from just a machine full of, well, either bits and bytes electrically or camshafts and pulleys and gears. And I don't think so. I, th- I think ontologically machines are of a different kind. And I think this is one of the key questions for our time is, you know, what is it, what is a machine and what is a person? And, you know, what is it that machines do well and what is it that people do well and are called to do and, and have responsibility for? And then using that ontological distinction to determine how we use these machines. Could someone create a sentient chatbot? Yeah. So that th- this is a question that a lot of people are toying with. And, and I would, um, I would venture out and say no, <laughs> but you know I, I would do so with humility because I don't know what the limits are in creation. But as far as I know, as far as I can tell, that sentience seems to be something that's uniquely and irreducibly kind of part of living beings. Um, you know, I, I think cats and I think bats and, and animals have some sense of what it like what what it is like to be a bat and what it is like to be a cat or a dog. Um, so they have a, a level of sentience, and of course, people have uh, sentience and consciousness, and 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 a biblical anthropology. If if you were to add that in there, right? People have a spirit, and they have a soul, and and they're they're much more than just uh, you know 
brains and and flesh. So I I think ontologically machines are of a different kind and of a different type, and and I'm 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 quite confident to say that they will never be sentient. But like I said, they can get so complex uh, that they could fool most of the people most of the time. But just because something looks like it's sentient doesn't mean that it is. Um, yes. And yeah, I mean th this is the idea behind something called functionalism. So functionalism is, is a philosophical kind of position that says. You know, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, the, then it is a duck. So it just the inputs and the outputs are what matter. And I would say that, you know, speaking from a Christian anthropology, that uh, that we're we don't just look at the inputs and the outputs, but we look at, you know, creationally what we are, what what a biblical anthropology would tell us about what it means to be human. Yes, I want to come on to this in, in a minute. But final yes. question on this on this train of thought, war, but could a machine decide it wanted to become sentient? <laughs> so in, in order to make decisions requires a certain kind of agency and i don't think that machines really have agency now a program programmed in such a way could could send an algorithm off in the direction of putting out messages that it would like to become sentient but that's a very different thing than having agency and deciding that you want to become sentient. So, uh, so yeah, agency is another, I think, important philosophical term, right? It requires agency, uh, requires that you have control and that you sort of are aware of what you're doing. And so it, it's it's closely coupled to sentience, I think, in some ways. So, mm. Absolutely fascinating. At, at some yes. point, here's another left field question for you, Derek. At some point in the future, could humans become part of machines? Yeah, so this is this is something. Well, in fact, I don't know whether you're recording video, but I'm I'm, I'm wearing a pair of glasses right now, so I'm a technologically enhanced human being. <laughs> you are, and so uh, am I. Right? I'm wearing glasses too. So yes, right. And so um, the, the sort of you know technology uh, being um, joined with human human uh, form in order to enhance or restore operation is something that that we've been doing for a while glasses and prosthetics and you know artificial hearts and and cochlear implants are examples of machines that are joined with human biology um, and of course there is a whole branch uh, philosophical sort of camp called transhumanism which is this whole area where people are seeking to sort of join human and machines in much much more intimate ways you know to to implant brains and uh, implant computers in people's brains and to augment people with you know perhaps even superhuman strength and capabilities and so that that's a whole other kind of area and i think there are people looking and striving and dreaming of the day when machines and humans blend together and perhaps even humans take on a completely different form this is this is the post-human sort of uh, vision and I would say, again, you know, uh, a Christian anthropology would moderate those sorts of things to sort of think about the question, what does it mean to be human and answer it in ways that uh, that might be very, very different than what a transhumanist might say. But but yes, I'm yeah. wondering to, to what extent this uh, AI technology has been driven by a transhumanist agenda. Do you think it is partly or? Not. I think I think some of the folks who are uh, very um, accomplished and uh, so, for instance, people like Ray Kurzweil, right? He he's a, a chief engineer at Google, I believe, is his title, and and he is actually dreaming of the day when he will be able to download his brain into a computer and live forever. 
Now that has certain presuppositions, of course, about what it means to be human. It means that if you know you can simulate the electrochemical reactions in a brain, you've you've captured the essence of what it means to be human. And I think a biblical anthropology would would uh, would have a lot to argue against that, and, and even its possibilities. So um, so yeah, I think that some of um, some of the leaders in technology uh, see technology in a very optimistic way, and they see it as sort of the root to, you know, basically bringing about a utopia on earth, including perhaps, you know, eliminating human frailty and even death, right? This idea of downloading a brain into a computer is, is, is a way of looking to technology as sort of savior of the human condition. So some do, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that that all are in that camp, but there are notable experts in this area who are very enthusiastic about the transhumanist agenda and are people who were working on AI. Okay, well, all that being said, how can Christians or how could Christians think about artificial intelligence and robotics? Do we need to be afraid of it? Uh, and what, what are some of the biblical responses we could have to it? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. In fact, you, you know, you, you, your listeners will probably notice that a lot of the questions you asked are, are not really technical questions. They're, they're more philosophical questions, right? And I think that people working in AI, that computer scientists, need to avoid the illusion that they can just form this tunnel vision and just can concentrate on bits and bytes and not worry about the larger issues. Because all of our activities, our ethics even, right, our, our ethics when we work with the, these sort of tools, has to has to be situated with a certain kind of set of values, right, or, or a certain kind of worldview. I think it's Alistair McIntyre who once said, you know, uh, we can't answer the question, what ought we to do until we answer the prior question, you know, of what story am I a part? And so, you know, as Christians, right, we're, we're part of the biblical story, right? This, this biblical story about creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that's sort of the arc of the biblical narrative. And, and so for AI in particular, we could say, well, the creation story tells us that we're made you know, the creation story of the creation of humans, humans were made distinct from other other parts of the creation. There, there, There's a different step in terms of how humans are created. And they're created with, you know, not just the stuff of the earth, but a spirit. So we're, we're distinct from machines, the creation story tells us. It also says that we have responsibility. There's something uniquely given to humans to have responsibility over the earth. But I would also say that AI is part of the latent potential in creation. It's part of the possibilities that God put into creation. It's not a, a fluke that we can, you know, build these sort of machines. I think it's part of the structures and possibilities in creation that God placed there and is looking for us to responsibly unfold and use. Now, the second act in the in the biblical story is this, this the, the fall, right, tells us that humans, right, were trying to seek autonomy and they fell into sin and that impacted their relationship with God and the creation. And of course, our tools and our human cultural activities, including engineering and technology, are impacted by sin as well. And so we see AI taking all kinds of directions that that are uh, irresponsible or unhelpful. And then of course, the, the redemption theme in, in the scriptures, of course, comes ultimately through Christ. But part of what we're called to do as, as Christians is to uh, participate in that, being agents of reconciliation, right, with Christ, and also called to bring to, to bring that responsibility and that reconciliation to the area of technology. And then, of course, the Bible ends with this new heaven and a new earth. So we're actually moving towards 
a city, right? With, with with technology, but but the one important thing about that image is that it's a new heaven and a new earth that comes down from heaven. It's not created on earth, right? So so we 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 see that we're called to responsible use of the tools and, and AI in particular, but that we don't look to these things to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. That's something that God does. So so that's a nutshell in a very brief nutshell. Yeah, that's very really good. And with renewed and transformed bodies, and we don't not quite sure how what that's going to yes. look like. But that's very contemporary uh, with the AI thinking, isn't it? Um, yes. Transformed body of some sort. Um, um, reformed reformed human a transformed human uh through yeah christ. i mean if we look yeah. at christ right i mean christ yeah. is the ultimate sort of image of what it means to be a human fully alive and his resurrected body was the same it was recognizable it even had you know the the nail marks mm. and so on in it so but he was able to move between rooms and you know he was able to do certain things that 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 um uh, prior we don't read about and of course but he also ate right he ate fish with them afterwards so so there is this image of christ that's sort of the first fruits of those who will you know who will ultimately die and sort of an image of sort of what we will be like but we, the bible doesn't give us a lot of information about it but it doesn't seem that computers and technology are heavily involved in that at least from those passages no uh, I feel we could talk a lot a lot longer, but I think that's our half hour. Um, uh, Derek Sherman, Professor of Computer Science at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan in the States, um, and the author of a, of a number of books, uh, including Shaping a Digital World, Faith, Culture and Computer Technology, which I must read, Derek. I haven't confessed I haven't yeah. read that one. I've read the other one, but not the... Thank you so much for your time, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Derek... Thank you so much. Thank you for this time. This time went by very fast, but it I did, enjoyed didn't it. It, it did. Yes. It always does. <laughs> Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash Podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash God Story Podcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.